Welcome to Eczema Breakthroughs, brought to you by Global Parents for Eczema Research, or Cheaper. This show features conversations between parents of children with eczema and the world's leading scientists and researchers who study eczema. Global Parents for Eczema Research is an international network of parents that advocates for better treatments and management options for children with eczema. Jeeper is led and comprised of parents of children with eczema and was formed in 2015 to address the critical need for research that answers questions of importance to patients and families. Learn more about Jeeper and subscribe to the Eczema Breakthrough Podcast at parentsforeczemaresearch.org. Okay, let's jump in and get started. Welcome, everybody. I'm Corey. Um, I'm with Global Parents for Eczema Research, and I'm so glad you could join us today. So happy to introduce our guest today, Dr. Richard Gallo, a distinguished professor and founding chair for the Department of Dermatology at the University of California, San Diego. His research focuses on the role of the, the immune system in skin health, and he's done some really interesting groundbreaking work on exploring how commensal beneficial bacteria found on healthy skin can control staph bacteria overgrowth, which is something we see in skin with eczema. So sort of using the battle of the bacteria between different strains of bacteria to potentially address eczema symptoms. And he recently co-authored a paper that I especially like the title of, which was Staph Aureus Master Manipulator of the Skin. So I'm thrilled to have him with us today and wanted to extend a special welcome to Dr. Gallo. Thanks very much, Corey. Let me kick us off with a quick question here. Can you help us understand what's going on with the relationship between this imbalance in staph bacteria going on on the skin in patients with eczema? But then there's this, this other thing, which is the out-of-control immune system and inflammation how do these relate to each other? How important are these different drivers? And can you help us understand this a little bit better? Well, this is something we've been working on for almost 20 years now, and it's, it's been really interesting to find how basically one thing is controlling the other. What we learned a long time ago, uh, this was a, published in the New England Journal back in 2002, was that... Um, when you have the rash associated with eczema, your skin not only gets red and itchy, but it also doesn't make a very important chemical that it needs to fight infections. So people without eczema, when they, they scratch their skin, part of the reaction is to make uh, these small proteins, we call them antimicrobial peptides, and they keep Staph aureus and, and other types of bacteria from uh, overgrowing on a damaged piece of skin. And atopic dermatitis patients don't have that or, or they don't have enough of it. What we've learned since then is once that starts, there seems to be a vicious cycle because the staph aureus is generally a, a, a disease-causing bacteria but patients with eczema get staph aureus very easily because of what I just described. And then the staph aureus makes its own chemicals, which in turn make the skin even worse. And then we start this vicious cycle. And as part of that, the cycle in the skin kills off other bacteria that are normally helping us further resist the staph aureus. So the, there's two parts of the immune system that go wrong. One is the patient's own immune system, the skin's contribution, 
But this, the bacteria that normally lives on healthy skin, we've learned, is also very important for maintaining skin health, and those bacteria die off. So you wind up having this double whammy of two things going wrong. And what we've learned, uh, you know, in the last couple of years is that it's possible to actually fix this whole cycle by adding back some of the good bacteria. Fascinating. Just a quick follow-up question with respect to this idea of rebalancing the skin and fixing these problems. Can you talk a little bit about the work you're doing to come up with a therapy that would do that? Yes. Well, you know, everybody on this call, I'm sure, has heard of the term used probiotics. And quite frankly, it's a term that's in many cases much more hype than it's, it's reality. It's hype and hope, you might say. But there, there are a lot of claims that bacteria can do good for human health. The reality is most of the bacteria are probably doing nothing. Some bacteria can help. But it is true that some bacteria do help. And what we're doing is trying to not be based on wishes, but actually scientifically discover exactly what the beneficial chemicals are that are produced by bacteria that help us. And then once you know exactly what's wrong, use just the right type of bacteria to, to try to fix things. And in the case of atopic dermatitis, we've discovered a few dozen very, very specialized bacteria that all healthy patients have, but most atopic dermatitis patients are missing. And quite simply right now, we're just taking one of those bacteria to start with, mixing in a cream and putting it back on the skin of just adults with atopic dermatitis. And uh, the two trials we've done so far have been fantastically successful. The first just looked at the ability of the bacteria to kill off the Staph aureus, and it, it did that very well. And the second trial was a week, and we, um, after one week, those patients, not only was their Staph aureus made much better, but the erythema, the redness, also started to improve. And this is without use of any other topical uh, steroid or any other therapy. So we're very encouraged by the early studies. Wow. So this would be considered like a phase one situation. We're a ways from... Right. Yeah. So phase one is a safety-only study, so we've not seen any bad effects, so that's true. But it also has aspects of a phase two study, which is showing therapeutic uh, efficacy. And even though it's small studies, because the effects have been so profound, we've reached uh, statistical significance in showing efficacy with a small number of, of subjects. Amazing. Well, that's really exciting. I know a lot of parents in our group are eager for therapies, new therapies that have a safer profile and side effect profile than some of the existing things on the market. So that's really wonderful. I'm going to pause and invite questions from the line. My name is Armando, just north of you in, in Orange County. Are, is there any uh, relationship between the bacteria and staph that are on the skin and uh, what we hear about in health-related conversations and articles related to bacteria in the, the nasal cavity and in the uh, guts. Yes, there is. And um, there's a lot to be learned about what those relationships are. The nose is a very special site, the nasal cavity, because staph aureus, even in healthy patients, very frequently can live 
in the nasal cavity. So that might be a reservoir that allows the skin and the rest of the body to get colonized and sometimes infected by Staph aureus. The gut is a, is a special situation because many of the bacteria of the gut are producing molecules that can influence nutrition, and we know that nutrition influences skin health. We also know from new experiments that bacteria on the skin can influence the bacteria in the gut. And the communicator between all of this is the, is the body's immune system. So everything's kind of linked up. You know, what, what you care about, what we care about is, you know, how can you manipulate that in, in a controlled way? So even though we know things are interacting with each other, being able to control it in a safe and uh, effective way is, is still a little bit beyond the reach right now. For those of us who have children or patients or acquaintances with eczema, are we looking at a decade-long wait or a, a five-year wait or a 30-year wait before this kind of discovery can be translated into some kind of over-the-counter treatment? Yeah, that, that's a really good question, and I, and I wish I, I could answer that more clearly. I think we have the, the theoretic possibility to get this in the pe people's hands in, in just a, a couple of years. We've advanced a lot in, in terms of this therapy in part because it is quote-unquote probiotic, so it's a naturally occurring organism which has a, a lot of examples of safety because we're all carrying these bugs around with us anyway. So that should help clear the path of development. But uh, there are regulatory agencies that can, can ask questions that can sometimes delay things a few years. So uh, we're hopeful it's, it's five years or less. It's certainly going to be much closer to that than the t 10 to 30 years. But uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't want to promise you anything at this point. So I have a question that came in from a parent. Dr. Gallo, I don't know if you've heard of a regimen that's sometimes referred to as Dr. Aaron or compounded antibiotic steroid moisturizer therapy. But a lot of parents in our group are reporting huge success with using it. We don't know if it's the simplicity of the application it just being one compound that you use at once rather than a whole bunch of different types of steroids and creams, et cetera, or if it's the antibiotic component. But it's an area of interest in terms of teasing that out for our group and trying to understand whether topical antibiotics make sense in the treatment of eczema. We know there's been some systematic reviews that look at this question that have been a bit mixed and also kind of mixed evidence around bleach baths. And can you help us understand what's going on here? Are these just not the right ways to control staph overgrowth? What's your perspective on that? Yeah, that, that, that's a great question. And, you know, it required us to go very carefully into the literature to try to make sense of what's going on as well. The first thing we discovered is that the studies that have reported failures to improve eczema with either topical antibiotics or oral antibiotics. Many times they didn't check if they actually killed the bacteria. And in every study that did check, it turns out the antibacterials that were being used were not killing the Staph aureus. Mm. So I guess it was no great surprise they weren't working. And even bleach baths, which there's been mixed feelings about, if you compare it to just plain water, 
it doesn't actually do any better at killing Staph aureus than plain water at the concentrations that are safe to use in a bleach bath. So a water bath can be helpful. I'm not saying that it's not uh, beneficial. I'm just saying that the antibiotic effects of a lot of the treatments that have been used in the past have been very minimal. Now, I've heard about this therapy, and actually he, he was at a lecture I gave recently and came up to me afterwards and was very excited about what we had to say because you know, what we're saying is that if you can effectively really kill Staph aureus, there's a good chance you're going to improve the rash. It's not a cure at this point. It's just improving it. And uh, I, I, I have not personally examined his, his methodology to see if it, it is effective. He believes it is effective. I've heard from patients that it does improve the, the skin disease. So my guess is that those people who are finding it working, it's probably because that regimen is actually uh, decreasing the staph aureus whereas some of the other things that have been tried were not working at that. My name is Virginia. I don't necessarily have a follow-up question, just curious about the protocol that you are using and when you would be interested in, I guess, trying that out on pediatric patients. My son is 13. I can attest to the Dr. Aaron regimen as having a huge success with him when every single thing else had failed for us and we had been living a life of hell. <laughs> And so um, he's sitting next to me, and, and again, it's not a cure. It's just a, a better way to manage. And so I'm always looking for what's not necessarily what's new out there, but what's possible on the road to having a cure, you know, someday where, you know, the scourge doesn't have to continue to torment, you know, patients like him. And so if you would, I guess you, you said earlier that it's work you've been trying your regimen out in adults and not necessarily young people. Yeah, we, we want it started on young people very soon. Right now we're just doing it on adults in two cities, in Denver and in San Diego. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we hope to open it up to more sites nationally. The trials that we're doing are funded by the National Institute of Health. Realistically, I think those trials probably wouldn't start for two or three years. Oh. Um, there is a company that's also working to make this either both as a drug that would be a prescription or as something sold as an over-the-counter. And if that company is successful, it may be something available even sooner than the NIH trial. So it's, again, another one of these issues where there's a lot of regulation in, in developing new therapies that, that sometimes slow things down, but it's, you know, for safety's sake, it's... If, we, if we're doing things very carefully and, and, and trying to show true uh, efficacy for people, I think it's important to, to be careful. Right. Um, yeah, that doesn't help you and your son, I, I know right now, but um, I, I think if, if nothing else, this is, you know, it's shown such promise and worked so well, I, I think you can be hopeful now, and, and I'm hopeful we can get something to you very soon. Thank you. Yeah, and Virginia, thanks for joining today. I know you're in the same position as a lot of parents in our group where we're just really you know, in, in kind of desperate need of new treatments that work for these kids that don't have their eczema resolved through the typical um, course of action. And so I actually wondered, maybe you could talk about that a little bit. It seems like there's a subset of kids where their eczema is quite treatable and then there's 
another group where perhaps the staff is playing a different role. Do we know anything about subpopulations? Or are there different kinds of eczema where staph becomes a bigger issue? It just seems that there's so much variability between children with the conditions. Yeah. You know, what we've learned, and I can say this with some confidence, is that there are probably hundreds of different things that can combine in different ways to lead to eczema or atopic dermatitis. And there's never in anyone just one thing. So the same staph aureus that might make one person have very, very severe eczema, someone else would completely ignore and not have any rash at all. So it's a mix of, of, of the genes and the environment. One or the other is not enough. Uh, and with the genes that we know, even the most common gene that's associated with eczema, which is a flagrant mutation, that's really a very small subset of less than 20%. Of, of at least the Northern European ancestry patients. So uh, it, it becomes a sort of a, a game of uh, roulette where you spin, the, you spin the wheel enough times and it comes up the wrong combination of things, you can then get eczema. If, if some of those things are things that change over time, you can grow out of, I think the eczema improves, whereas other things are not changeable with development. The bacteria that live on the skin, they tend to inhabit your skin very early in life, maybe in the first few weeks. And then they set up shop deep down in the hair follicles. And they become very, very permanent and very difficult to change over time. So, uh, you know, we're working on that now. So for those people with eczema that are responsive to the bacteria on the skin, there's a couple things we want to do. One is showing the short-term improvements we have so far to figure out a way to get the good bacteria to maintain permanently on the skin. So that would be, in a way, a, a possible cure. And another idea we have is to look at infants that are born at high risk and try to intervene uh, in that population before they develop the eczema and, and get them off to the right start. The bacteriotherapy approach or the biotherapy approach may lead to something closer to a cure rather than just a, a temporary treatment. But it's not, never going to work for everyone. It's going to be always a subset of pay, people that have to be approached differently. Right. And I think that's what can be frustrating on the, you know, patient and family side. When you meet somebody whose eczema is miraculously resolved by XYZ thing, but that doesn't work for you because there's so many things coming into play. Hi, this is Carrie. And I recently read something about helminths, which are parasitic worms, and they're function in the full biome with bacteria. Do you know anything about that or is this just really off the wall? No, that's, um, <clears throat> there's been a lot of uh, uh, work on those for, for a few decades already. Some of the original observations that were made in the 1980s, the speculation was that people with many different types of autoimmune disease and general inflammatory diseases can be influenced by these maybe worms that set up shop in the intestine. And we know that the immune system reacts all over the body to parasites in, in, in the gastrointestinal tract. So it's not off the wall, but it's, again, one of those things that's very, very difficult to control. And for as many examples as there are of a, of a helminth infection showing uh, improvement in an autoimmune disease or in an eczematous disease, 
there's lots of other examples you don't hear about about people developing rashes when they get a worm infection. So there's something there, there's something real, but I don't think uh, medical science right now understands it enough to be able to give you a safe way to, to control it. Any other questions? Doctor, I found it fascinating that you, you referenced how bacteria attach to the root of hair follicles, and that got me thinking, and this has come up in some of our conversations before, is there, is there any kind of device where a layperson can measure the level of, of, of colonization of staph bacteria or count the number of staph in a square inch or something of that effect? We've, I've heard of uh, you know, swabs and sending that to a lab to see if staph is present. Is there anything the layperson can do to, to track the ups and downs in staph counts? Yeah. Not really, at least not that I'm aware of. The staph bacteria, there's some other types of bacteria that you can see with a black light that glow, but that's not the staph uh, bacteria. Even the, the existing methods that are out there sort of swabbing on the surface, that's not a great way to really measure what's going on because the bacteria that probably really matter are the ones deep down, a couple millimeters down in each of those five million pits that we all have on our skin that we call pores. The, the ones down in those pores are, there's more down there than anywhere else, and, and those are the ones that are interacting with the body. So I, I, I wish I had better news for you that you can measure it, but uh, right now you've got to come into a lab, and it's a, it's a very involved process to be able to assess it. Wow. Okay, great. Any other questions? Okay, well, this is a question that I've been posing, actually, to all of our featured guests on these research Q&As, and I guess it could be posed two ways. One is, what is the most exciting area of research on atopic dermatitis right now, or where do you see or how do you see the treatment of eczema or atopic dermatitis changing in the next five to ten years? Let's make it two to five, since our parents uh, have a shorter timeline, so you can answer either of those. Well, you know, the area that is showing immediate benefit for many patients right now are the new injectable biologics, which are targeting the circulating cytokines that are one of the very key parts of this cycle I talked about. So I think that's very exciting. You know, we have one medication that's been approved now and a number of the pharmaceutical companies that can charge an awful lot for these medications, are, are working hard to get others. In the disease psoriasis, we saw this happen about 10 or 15 years ago, and, and now there's just so many remarkable and safe options for patients with psoriasis. It's a completely new landscape on the, on the very severe patients with that disease, and I think we'll see that in, in atopic dermatitis, the very, very severe patients that need drastic systemic interventions should be very optimistic. The hard part is for the majority of patients with the mild to moderate eczema. And, uh, you know, quite frankly, I think this microbiome approach is, is probably the, the area that is uh, most exciting in, in the field right now and I think very, very promising. I wanted to extend a special thank you for attending and being part of the call today to you, Dr. Gallo, but also for the research that you're doing. I think it provides a lot of hope for us 
and is really looking at a potentially very safe alternative to start to address some of these imbalances we see with skin bacteria. It's very exciting and speaking on behalf of the parents in our group, a really exciting area of research. Thank you again for attending this latest research meetup with Global Parents for Eczema Research. Goodbye, everybody. Just thank you. Fascinating topic. Thank you. Goodbye. It's my pleasure. You've been listening to the Eczema Breakthrough Podcast. To learn more and join Global Parents for Eczema Research or to subscribe to this podcast, please visit us at parentsforeczemaresearch.org. Thank you, and we'll see you next time on the Eczema Breakthrough Podcast.